Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. It's always such a blessing to come be here and like listen to the things that comes out of your mouths. <laughs> um, honestly, it really is. We've been so blessed every time we've been with you guys and been able to worship with you guys. And So thank you for being who you are. Thank you for following Jesus with your hearts. And uh, it's quite a blessing. So as Steve said, I'm in, I'm in seminary. And part of one of the things they teach you to do in seminary is try and read widely and um, you know interact with thoughts and ideas from people that are particularly people who are outside of your own sort of stream of thinking. So what I do is I try and read blogs from theologians and pastors and scholars that are very, very liberal all the way to very, very conservative. And uh, there's this one guy I really love to read. I love his heart for Jesus, but he's, as far as the conservative, liberal. if this was liberal and that was conservative, he'd be like over there somewhere. Um, Great guy, though, loves Jesus, but he had this this blog titled, um, The One Tattoo I've Seriously Considered Getting. And, you know, he's a professor of Old Testament at Reformed Puritan Theological Seminary. So I was like, okay, a tattoo, all right? So I was like, i got to read this. And so I, I opened the blog, and what it said was, The one tattoo I've seriously considered getting is ten letters in bold ink across my forehead. And it would say, not by works. And um, he went on in that article to explain one of the things he has to do to fulfill his denominational obligations is go to the bedside of dying saints. And he does this many, many times a year. And he was sharing that it's surprising how many of these people have been raised in church, sat under faithful, godly, clear exposition of truth, and they come to the moment where it's time to meet God. And this gentleman will ask them, do you have peace in your soul? Do you, are you assured of salvation? And these folks will begin reliving their past regrets. Things that they should have done but didn't. Things that they shouldn't have done but did. And he said, my counsel's been the same for 20 years. Not by works, brother. Not by works, Sister, and of course he's referring to Ephesians 2, where it says, you know, by faith you have been, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, the gift of God, not by works. And, um, you know, where did, why, why is that the case? I mean, of course Paul said it, but where did Paul get it? We're going to look at the foundation for that claim today. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We're breaking from Psalm 119. I'm sorry, I didn't know you were in the middle of a series, else I would have reached out and found out what you guys are preaching on, but this truth really rocked my soul. So as you're flipping over there, let's humble our hearts and let's open our ears and our eyes to the reading of God's Word. That's going to be an extended portion of Scripture, so just bear with me, okay? Luke 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, 
the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Samin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, son of Nurai, the son of Melki, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mephat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Turah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphachad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him and said, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe you notice as I was reading there that Luke just inserted a long genealogy in the middle of what would otherwise be a normally flowing story. And what's interesting about the insertion of Jesus' lineage is that Luke doesn't really tell us why he put it right there. He doesn't really give us any authorial clues except for one. It's the title Son of God. At the baptism, Jesus enters the water to be identified with the repenting remnant of Israel. In response to this, God says, you are my beloved son. You're the son of God. Then Luke, of course, transitions into the genealogy, that long one I just read. And where Matthew only goes back to Abraham, Matthew's gospel only goes back to Abraham, Luke takes us all the way back to Adam, whom he refers to as the son of God. And then Jesus is finally led out into the wilderness to be tested in chapter 4, and he's being tempted and tested as the Son of God. Two of the three times when Satan provokes him, he says, if you are Son of God. 
Son of God is a really important term in understanding the flow of thought here for Luke. And because it's so important, I think it's probably really important to make sure we all understand what it means. So I'm going to take about five minutes to put some flesh on the term Son of God, and I'm going to take about three minutes to talk through why the genealogy bridges the baptism and the temptation, and then I'll unpack the temptations. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, I was a Christian for about a year, and then I went into seminary. And so it's, <laughs> I'm not the best judge of like what's common knowledge in terms of what people know or don't know. But when I ask most people, what does the term Son of God mean? Most people said it means second person of the Trinity. Is that what you thought it meant? It can't mean that in this passage. And I know it can't mean that because in chapter 3, verse 38, the son of Adam, Adam is called the son of God. Adam is not the second person of the Trinity. So, what does it mean? Well, it turns out that the idea of the son of God is something that flows right through the center of the biblical redemptive storyline that starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation. How was Adam the son of God? Well, if you go back and read Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 26-28, when it talks about the creation of Adam, it says eight times that Adam's being placed over things. He's putting over the fishies and over the birdies and over the plants and the animals. Adam was given dominion. Adam was created to be the king of earth. He was to be a representative ruler, God's Viceroy, He was to rule the earth in a way that perfectly patterned the character of God. Of course, sin broke everything. We all know that. Humanity fell into a state of sin, but then fast forward hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and we see the term Son of God showing up again during the reign of David. In 2 Samuel 7, the heir of the eternal throne that's promised to David is going to be the Son of God. Second Samuel 7.14, it says, I'll be a father to him. He will be a son to me. The promised sovereign king will be Son of God. You fast forward another 500-ish years, and God is authoring Psalm 2. It's a king's coronation psalm. And we find that term, Son of God, again. Psalm 2 is speaking about the Christ. In Hebrew, the Meshiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One. In Psalm 2.2, it says, The kings of the earth have set themselves against the Lord and his Meshiach, his Christ. In Psalm 2.7, we're told that this is the king that God will install on Zion. And in verse 7, the Christ, the Meshiach, he opens his mouth to speak. And he says, I'll tell of your decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. That is not about God giving birth, brothers and sisters. That is about a king assuming a throne. It's about the Son of God receiving the nations as his inheritance, about a king being established over the earth. Son of God means king of earth. Son of God means king of earth. I've argued from the Old Testament that the Son of God means king, but how do I know that that's what Luke means? Well, if you go back to Luke 2... I'm sorry, Luke 1, 32-33. The angels come to Mary, who's just is about to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. 
and the angels speaking to her saying, He will be great, this one you will bear, and will be called Son of the Most High. Who's the Most High? God. He will be called Son of God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Who sits on thrones? Kings. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Who reigns? You get the point, right? Son of God means king of earth. So then why, why does Luke put the genealogy in between the baptism and the temptation? I think that there's three reasons. I'm going to go through them quickly. I think the first reason that Luke gives us a genealogy going from Jesus back to Adam is to make it exceedingly clear to you that what you are about to witness is a real event. Jesus isn't God in a flesh suit. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He truly will be tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. What you are about to witness is a live temptation. But there's a second reason, I think, that he gives us this genealogy. The second is to amp up the sheer weight of evidence against our race. We go all the way back to Adam. There's 77 names. I read every one, and I read them all so that you could feel the effect of, wow, this is taking a long time. Is he going to really read every single one? We have the full number of the sons of Adam, all born in the flesh, all born with a conscience, all born with some understanding of the difference between right and wrong, all led to the wilderness of temptation, and all have failed. As Adam, the first son of God, was tested in the wilderness, as Israel was tested in the wilderness, as gold is tested by fire, so this son of God must be tested to determine whether or not he truly is a loyal and beloved son. And this is the final reason, I think, and I think this is the most clear of why Luke connects the baptism and the genealogy. Just as Adam represented us in the garden, so Jesus will represent us in the wilderness. Jesus entered the baptismal waters to be identified with the repentant people. And now, having identified himself, he will go as our qualified representative into the wilderness to be tempted and tried as our representative. And remember, unlike Matthew only goes back to Abraham, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And I think that the reason he does that is so that we will see that as Jesus enters the wilderness to represent his people, it's not just the sons of Abraham, it's all the sons of Adam. Every person, in every place, at every time, who repents of their sin and turns to the Lord for mercy, is being represented by Christ, Jew or Gentile. And the fate of the entire world is bound up in what our Lord is about to do. If he is tested and found faithful, then there's hope. If he is tested and found wanting, the way every man since the dawn of time has been tested and found wanting, there is no hope. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for your parents or for your children. We will be lost forever. And I put it in those terms because I want you to feel the weight, the cosmic significance of what we're about to read, of what we're about to investigate. The Son of God has come. He has been qualified to represent us on our behalf. 
but now he must be tested. Will he be found faithful? Let's look at the temptations. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So, in this cosmic boxing match that's about to take place, Luke kind of shows up as a ring announcer of sorts. He starts giving us details about the contenders. In this corner, we have the reigning champion, 77 wins, no losses. 76 wins, no losses. The possessor of all of Earth's present authority and glory, the devil. And in this corner, Jesus, the Son of God, led by the Spirit, dying of starvation, alone. At the end of 40 days of unbroken demonic provocation, we are not expecting much of a fight here, folks. Where Adam was tested in a warm garden, surrounded by food, with his best friend and helper at his side, Jesus will be tested alone with nothing in the howling wilderness. As Israel was tested during a time of unprecedented miracles of grace, Jesus will receive no bread from heaven, no water from a rock, no powerful acts of divine deliverance. It comes down to this moment. Jesus at his weakest and the devil at his strength. If the Son of God, listen to me, if the Son of God is not found faithful, then the cross means nothing. If the Son of God is not found faithful, then the cross means nothing. If the sacrifice is not perfect, it is not sufficient for our sins. As the Old Testament would put it, if the sacrifice is not without blemish, it is not an offering acceptable to God. We need a righteous Savior. Verse 3, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. What's the devil doing there? When you read it in English, it looks like he's asking, he's like questioning whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God, really is the Messiah. But he's actually not. It's it, The temptation is much more subtle than that. And sorry, I'm going to talk about Greek for a second, okay? If you're reading this in Greek, what you'd see is a first-class conditional clause, and it's absolutely clear what it means. A first-class conditional clause in English would sound like, since you're so smart, solve this Ruby's Cube. I'm assuming that the first premise is true, you are smart, and therefore the second premise logically follows, you can solve a Rubik's Cube. And we normally clue in that we're doing that by the word since in English, but they don't do that in Greek, they say if. And so sometimes you lose, it becomes a little bit ambiguous in the translation. But that's not what's going on here. The devil is acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's holding up a stone in the face of the starving Prince of Peace. And he's saying, you should be treated better than this. You're the Messiah. If anyone should be spared the pain of hunger, it would be you, Son of God. Think about how much your stomach hurts, Jesus. Would a loving God lead you out here? Ever heard that voice? Ever had those thoughts creep in? 
Your way is better than the Father's way. That's the temptation. Make your own way. And standing there, probably with sunken eyes and exposed ribs, Jesus mutters with a weak, raspy voice, Man shall not live by bread alone. What does that mean? Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. The people of God have been brought to the land through many miraculous miracles and wonders. And God said, all right, go, go fight those guys. And they're like, well, no, they're too big. We don't want to fight. And so God's like, all right, leave. And they leave. And now that whole generation has died in the desert. And God is speaking through Moses to their children. He says to Israel, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Man lives because God is faithful. Israel didn't make it 40 years in the desert because they figured out a way to make bread from sand. They lived in the desert because God miraculously provided from heaven. More important than having bread, Jesus says, is being faithful to the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one who keeps the sky above us and the ground below us. The one who keeps our hearts beating through the night. Jesus will not doubt God's goodness. He will not doubt his provision. He'll not be tempted to act for his own sake because God spoke at the baptism, you are my beloved son. God spoke. The mana that God gave to Israel was an act of mercy to a generation that had failed. They came face to face with the prospect of suffering and turned away from the power of God. If God really cared about us, he wouldn't ask us to wage war against such a formidable foe. And where Israel failed to trust God in the possibility of pain, here our Lord is trusting him in the midst of it. Jesus remained dependent on God in the midst of unimaginable pain. Where Israel failed, where Adam failed, I failed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has succeeded. Have you failed? Have you been tempted, tested, and found wanting in the midst of your pain? Here is the Son of God, dear soul, faithful and righteous in your place, on your behalf. But the devil is not done. The story continues, verse 5. And the devil took him up 
He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I'll give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. So the devil takes Jesus up into some kind of ecstatic vision where he's able to see all of the earth, every single nation, all at once. I'm not sure how it's possible, but it happened. And uh, the devil repeatedly underscores the word all, all glory, all kingdoms, they'll all be yours. He's really trying to sell this thing, right? But (laughs) it's an interesting question. How is this a temptation for Jesus? I mean, I went to great lengths at the beginning of the sermon to argue that Son of God means King of Earth. He's going to own the King. He's the King of Earth. He will rule. Jesus is the rightful heir to all things. But Jesus appeared on Earth to secure his inheritance through suffering, crucifixion, and death. And what the devil is tempting him with is to accept the kingdom without the cross. He comes to our Lord in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his hunger and his pain, and he offers him a way out. Don't go through this, Jesus. Just worship me. It'll all be over. You know, as I was meditating on these temptations, it occurred to me that not all of us, maybe all of us, know what it's like to be led into the valley of the shadow of death and really legitimately question God. Like, are you good in this? But I think that everyone knows what it's like to be led to a moral crossroad and you realize that doing the wrong thing will make your life a whole lot easier than doing the right thing. Satan is saying, take the easy way, Jesus. Deny the Father. Avoid all this suffering. Why would you go to the trouble of being abandoned by your friends? Really? You're going to be murdered in front of your own mother? Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to your family? Just worship me. I'll give you everything. Can the devil do that? (laughs) Interesting question. This passage makes it sound like even though Satan is not, does not have absolute authority, he does have some authority. Verse 6, it says, it's been given to me. It's been delivered to me. He's a temporary steward of power in this world. And even though his authority is not ultimate, the whole world really does lie in the power of the evil one to some sense. That's what First John says. I think that's the only way to explain why Jesus doesn't just scoff in his face. Satan comes to Jesus in the midst of his suffering and offers him a way out. Imagine that, young woman, um, being in a situation where your friends are like, you're a prude. We're not going to hang out with you. We don't want to be your friends anymore. You think you're better than us. You ever heard that old song and dance? And in that moment of loneliness... Satan comes and says, do you want to see your friends come groveling back? Do you want to see people in the future make wardrobe decisions based on how you dressed this morning? I can make you the most popular girl in school. I'll make you the most popular woman on earth. Just forget about what God says. Do what I say. I'll make you the most popular girl on earth. 
Just worship me. Just worship me and it'll cost you nothing except your soul. Imagine a young man losing your job, having no way to pay the rent, not having the emotional fortitude to look your wife in the face and say, I can't figure out how to provide. And Satan coming along and saying, I need a job, you need some money. I can make this a lot easier for you. Just don't listen to, don't listen to God. Don't yield to his word and his commandments. Just do what I say. I know he says don't lie, steed, and shield, but don't worry about that. I'll make you the richest man on earth. Just worship me. How many of us have sinned for far less than everything? But how does the Son of God respond? Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I'm not here to serve myself, Satan, and I'm certainly not here to serve you. God alone, God alone is worthy of worship and allegiance and service. Jesus says in John 6.38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God, make us a people like that. I like dream of the day where I wake up every morning and it really is the deepest impulse of my heart at every step saying, God, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come through me in my home, my marriage, my private life, my job, my neighborhood. Crush me, build me up, exalt me, humble me. Just let your will be done in me. That is the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. I don't want the path of least resistance. I want the path that brings glory to God. We're not here for our sake. We're here for His. Where Adam forfeited the comfortable dominion of the entire earth to take the one thing that God denied him, Jesus forfeited the comfortable dominion of all the earth to embrace all the suffering and pain that God had promised him. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. With the first two temptations done, I imagine that it's dawning on our Lord that whatever hope he had that God would come and rescue him from this hour is past. He will face this final temptation alone. He must be tested. He must be stripped in order to reveal the true quality of his being. Let's see how this battle ends. Verse 9. And he, Satan, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. That question is repeated, if you are the Son of God. And again, it's that first class, first class conditional clause. He's acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. And since he is the Son of God, he should just throw himself down from the temple. Just cast yourself from the pinnacle. What's going on here? I've heard others preach this, and they have argued that... Um, Satan is inviting Jesus to embrace some sort of celebrityism. Like if you throw yourself off the temple, like everyone will see the angels catch you, and then 
um, you'll be the Messiah, you'll be so popular. The only thing that's hard about that for me is that there doesn't seem to be anything about that in the text unless I'm seriously missing something. Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself off since God has made these promises concerning his protection of you. And Jesus' response is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I, I don't see any suggestion that this event is going to be public. It reads just like the last two temptations, a private battle between the Son of God and the devil. I think rather than tempting Jesus with celebrity, it seems to me that the devil is tempting Jesus to adopt a sinful orientation towards the promises of God. God has borne testimony from heaven that Jesus was the Son of God. The Holy Spirit really had descended on him visibly and bodily. And now, here comes Satan saying, yeah, I know you heard that stuff, but do you really believe it? I know what he said, but do you really, really believe if what God really said was true, then you won't fall to your death right. Prove you believe it. Jump. God's trustworthy. He'll catch you, right? Jump, Jesus. What's the hook? What's the hook in this temptation? I don't even think it's about getting the son to jump. I think it's about getting the son to doubt that God really will. I think it's about getting Jesus to go like, yeah, I know, I heard him speak, I, I heard it with my own ears, I know that I saw the Spirit descend, I saw it with my own eyes, but maybe I need just one more sign to be sure. Just one more sign to confirm the truth of what God has already said. I think that's a sin. You might be thinking to yourself, of course Jesus knows he's the Son of God, what kind of stupid temptation is this? But... I mean, think about it. People start to think all kinds of crazy things after extended periods of cognitive duress, when you're psychologically just being attacked, someone's following you around for 40 days while you're hungry, going, God doesn't love you. God left you out here to die. What are you doing out here? Look at all this suffering, Jesus. If you really are the Messiah, prove it. At what point do we break in that situation and start believing the accuser? If Jesus allows his heart to question the word of God, it is over. If Christ fails to remain in utter dependence upon the word of God, then all of us are forever lost. But... Jesus replies in verse 12, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. Where Adam failed to trust the word of God, Jesus firmly planted his feet and held fast. Where Israel failed to walk in humble obedience, wholly resting on the goodness of God and what he had said, Jesus was found wholly dependent down to his very core. Listen to me. Where you have failed, where the church has failed to remain utterly dependent on the promise of God, here is Christ succeeding in your place. Behold, the perfect man. 
This story is not here primarily to teach us how to fight sin like Jesus. This story is here because all of us have gone into the wilderness of temptation, fought sin, and failed, and the Son of God has taken on flesh and conquered in our place. I'm sorry I'm raising my voice. I'm not angry. I'm excited. (laughs) If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is reckoned to you. It's given to you. It covers you. When you place your faith in Jesus, it's not just about having the debt of your sin paid for at the cross. Though praise God, our sin is paid for at the cross. Jesus didn't just pay our debt. He earned our righteousness. He earned your acceptance before the Father. Just as in Adam, we're born into this state of guilt before the Lord. In Christ Jesus, we are born again into a standing of utter perfection. We are accepted in Him. In Him, we are regarded as He is. In Christ, God loves us as if we were the ones who never questioned whether He was good in our suffering. He loves us as if we were the ones who never entertained the idea of taking the easier road. He loves us as the ones who have never once questioned the veracity, the truthfulness of His promises. Brothers and sisters, not by works. Do you see that? The holy perfections that we have just witnessed from our Lord's beautiful heart are yours when and only when you accept that you have failed in the wilderness, when you accept that you have sinned, and that sin makes you unacceptable before a righteous and holy judge. But in accepting our own imperfections, God invites us to look away from ourselves and under the perfections of Jesus Christ. He is ours and we are His if we believe everything and follow Him. I have one final remark. Verse 13 says, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That opportune time is going to be the night that Satan puts it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray our Lord. And we're going to hear these temptations played out one last time as our Savior is hanging from the cross, panting, bleeding, dying. The Jews and the Romans will yell out mocking him, If you really are the Lord's Christ, if you really are the Son of God, save yourself, come down from that cross. But he won't. Because the battle was won in the wilderness. This is our Lord, brothers and sisters, righteous for you, righteous in your place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus Christ. I thank you so much that you speak honestly with us about who we are and what we've done and that you offer in your astounding, gracious provision, a perfect one for us. You invite us to look away from ourselves and look to the one who fought death and won, fought sin and conquered. Lord, I pray for the people here who woke up this morning, drove into church, and had sin in their heart, and they look fine to everyone else, and inside they're struggling. 
I hope that they would see Christ perfect for them and they would cast all their hope wholly, wholly on the works, the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Would you do this, Father, in his name? Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. If you'd like to receive prayer, um, Jason and Patty's home group is going to be praying at the front. It was a pleasure sharing the word with you all. I hope that you're blessed. So go in peace.